welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 78, recorded on, uh, what is it today, August 1st. Time is just flying. We're into the, the cicadas are buzzing outside in the uh, the later summer air. Uh, joining me today on the, uh, the Geeky Photography Podcast, where we really just find some of the under the hood stuff that the photo industry can put out and dig even deeper and pull out the nuts and bolts and see what we can make of it. This week is Jordan Drake. Hey, and Jordan is, uh, uh, hey, Jordan, thanks for being here. Uh, I was going to continue the intro. Good night. To Feel say, free. It was going well. <laughs> yeah, he is a. He's a photo geek, but also a video geek, uh, you know, a, a great guy, all around wonderful personality and opinions that I respect that are just well-rounded and unbiased because he gets to play with pretty much everything that the industry puts out. And uh, that makes him a very valuable resource for a podcast like this because he's got uh, sort of a he's had his hands uh, on pretty well every camera that we have all lusted after at one point or another, even if just for a brief little bit of tinkering Mm -hmm. here and there or some more in-depth stuff, which I know you love to do uh, with your partner in crime, Chris Nichols at DP Review TV. Yep. I at about some you you didn't (laughs) see that's why I didn't want to catch you off there. Uh, so uh, thanks for uh, jumping back on the show, Jordan. It's not your first time here, and I want to have you back on more often. Um, but uh, what have you been up to lately that you can actually talk about? Uh, well, we've got a whole pile of DP Review stuff coming up right now. Um, this summer's been interesting because it's a big firmware season. Um, so we've actually been testing that. Historically, we've never done dedicated videos for um, firmware before, but we've got big stuff on the Nikon Z system that's already out. I just finished testing the Panasonic S1s vlog update uh which is yeah well huge. that's a paid update right? it is a paid update uh and so they, they've done that before it's not their first time doing that uh and and what are your thoughts on that for somebody that is not just doing casual video that wants all the pixels uh but wants to mesh that in with a uh, a larger project well i think it's a really overdue upgrade because Panasonic's always had that there. They've been very solid on the video front for a while. And the S one was very noticeably like, there's a few things here that should be here that aren't. Um, And the big one for me is this isn't vlog L their consumer version. This is the full stuff from the very cams from their Evo one cameras. Uh, They're more professional cinema cameras. And we tested this camera alongside of it. And I'm going to spoil it a little bit. It is better than their, cinema cameras in a lot of regards. So having that in a small package at that price point is really great. And what's really cool is it sounds like in most regions, if you bought the camera already, they're just going to give you the upgrade for free. So you'll still have to wait for them to ship you the damn box with your (laughs) serial number in it instead of just emailing you it. But uh, I have no idea what levels of bureaucracy have had to have been gone back and forth and twisted around. That red tape is in a nice little bow right now. Uh, But you can Get your box. (laughs) And I'm laughing right now because Jordan Drake's lighting setup has just collapsed on him. And that doesn't matter for us watching the video. This was hastily assembled, yeah. It's just like a cat walked by or some other crazy amount of chaos that... Oh, I uh, I love doing this show because all of this fun behind the scenes stuff. I'm going to leave this in because... Oh, you absolutely uh, should, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so... Jordan, it, when we're talking about an upgrade like this, uh, Panasonic originally was going to charge for it. And then I think there was a, a fair amount of backlash. I mean, not any more than you would expect for something like this, because I'm sure a lot of people complaining about not having this feature are the people that would never use the feature course, yeah. anyway. And the people that would use the feature looked at whatever price point you would throw them uh, you know, under $500 and said, yeah, that's worth yeah. it. Well, and I do think there's a very different culture in video paid firmwares are the norm on a lot of cameras. So we're all accustomed to that. It's the photo community that's like, we have to pay for features that require R&D and hard work from people to implement in our cameras. So I don't have a huge issue with it, uh, especially at that price point. And I also think a lot, like working at a camera store for quite a while, the number of people who would come in, they'd hear that log was great. They've never touched a video file before. They'd shoot a bunch of important projects in log and have no idea how to work with it or how to expose for it. Um, Oh, yeah, because if you just shoot log and then you try to put that out 
like yeah. to the you know uh, consumer public, it's going to be awful. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like taking the way I process an HDR image in the HDR processing system is kind of analogous to this, where I would uh, intentionally darken the highlights and intentionally brighten the shadows so that everything isn't clipped as being too dark or too bright, which inherently gives you a dull uncontrasty, boring image <laughs> that then you push and pull to your liking in tools that you're more familiar with. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's kind of the same thing that you get with a log file. The contrast is dull because it needs to be mapped to something more useful as part of the editing process. Yeah, and it takes a long time. Like I've been doing working with log files for you know nearly a decade and I'm no colorist and I still struggle with it once in a while. So for the average person, I kind of get why Panasonic's trying to put up as many roadblocks as possible just to keep from getting those calls coming in for support about why is my video gross and gray. So it's a pain, but at the end of the day, I'm just excited that it's available for those of us who do want it and need it. And and have you published your uh, your video on the, uh, the S-Log yet? No, you got a scoop right now. This won't be up for probably another week and a half. So, Oh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, I'm going to look for that. And uh, I might even go in and update the show notes with the link to that because that's some pretty interesting stuff there. It, it, it affects the cameras that I use. I'm using the S1R that doesn't get that upgrade, mm-hmm. uh, which is unfortunate. But I understand that, uh, you know, the S1 is really the one that's tailored towards the video audience, not only in terms of just the upgrade, but you've got the full frame 4K uh, and you have a few extra bells and whistles just built into that package to be. It's, right? it's a better sensor for it. I mean, what I really like about this is we know the S1H is coming. So this is a really exciting kind of glimpse into what we could probably expect from the image out of that. And it is lovely. Oh, awesome. Great to hear. Well, uh, how about let's get into the stories mm-hmm. uh, that kind of hit along the idea of video as well, because our first story uh, or kind of pair of stories come from Red. Uh, Red Cinema, they've uh, been a uh, mover and shaker in the industry for quite some time. When they came out with their Red One, all of the, uh, the old guard, uh, which included Panasonic and Sony and many others, uh, basically said, what are you doing? You can't jump into this market. <laughs> and uh, well, here they are. They're still uh, they're still pushing out revolutionary new hardware all the time, including what they had recently produced was something that I consider quite a joy to use is the uh, the, the red hydrogen smartphone. Yeah. And I think I'm the only one. Um, <laughs> But this device um, is, it's got a a 3D camera on both the front and the back and a screen that can display 3D stereoscopic images without the need of glasses or anything. And they're not the first company to try this. HTC had one of their Evo phones out that did it and it did it very poorly. Um, One of the Chinese manufacturers uh, did one as well. uh, And I've got a copy of that in a drawer somewhere just for comparison and it was no good either and the hydrogen was far and above beyond what any of those were but it was still not exactly what people wanted it to be well and what was initially promised this is kind of the red thing they make a lot of cool cameras whether they live up to the initial pre-announcement hype is ever has kind of debatable um but i remember when so there's Oh, sorry. I was going to say when uh, you came to Calgary, that was kind of the first time I'd seen non-glasses 3D that I would consider somewhat acceptable. Like I am, I'm I'm not a huge fan of 3D unless it's done almost perfectly. And this was the closest I'd seen on a consumer device. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's not just the technology. It's also the implementation of the 3D because there are so many movies that are so badly (laughs) like half converted to 3D or they just use the effect to too much uh, uh, of a gimmicky, like you're throwing things at people and it just, it doesn't work because it breaks you out of the cinema. Yeah. Um, and I bought into the system uh, an early pre-order because I wanted the the add-ons, the modules that they promised. Yeah. Uh, a, a more advanced stereo module to fit on the back and a more advanced uh, 2D module with uh, possibly interchangeable lenses and all of this. Um, that has never materialized. Mm-hmm. I saw some behind-the-scenes prototypes of stuff they were working on at one point, uh, and it was big. I mean, this was not behind closed doors. This was on their forums and stuff. Um and it was like the the prototype 3D module was a full-on red camera that weighed 15 pounds. Yeah. Like it was not a small piece of equipment. And I thought, well, I just wanted something to ta- attach on the back, maybe double the size of the phone and have more fun with it. Not anything crazy. Um, and so Red has done two things. Number one, on the um, on the H4VUser.net forum, uh, Jim Gennard has basically said, 
uh, we're going to blame our ODM, our original uh, device manufacturer in China, for all of the faults here uh, with the Hydrogen One. And I got to say, it's been a solid device, but my fingerprint scanner has broke right. three times. I just uh, one simple component like that, that if you don't get right, it's going to annoy the users and it's going to cost you a ton of money to fix all of that stuff under warranty. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've basically blamed other people and said, we are going to uh, kind of hit this out of the park with the hydrogen two, which is wonderful. It means they're not giving up, right. uh, especially in the face of some very extreme adversity here. Um, I also remember hearing at one point in one of uh, uh, Jim's missives on the, uh, uh, on the forums that in trying to overcome some of the challenges that they were faced with to create the modules and to improve the quality of the device, they basically encountered something radically different that required patents to be filed as a possible way forward. So you can't just do an in-place improvement upon your equipment if you have to go back to the patent filing process uh, and start to bring things up. So it's been a long time coming. Um, so yeah, we'll get a hydrogen too at some point. And maybe when I'm out in Calgary, as a, well, I'll be out in November this year, but I'll probably be out again next year. I'll stop by and I will show you whatever comes of this uh, sort of fantasy to have this wonderful holographic display that has not become anything useful but i think more interesting to our uh, our, our users our listeners uh is something that was teased on the red user forum by jared land who is the president and ceo of red cameras themselves and he has teased a, a device called the komodo and it claims to be no greater than four inches in size in any direction and you can only see a bit of the logo on the bottom and a lens mount mm-hmm. And a tiny bit of what, what's inside that lens mount. That lens mount with a bit of sleuthing, uh, it's not hard to discover. It is the Canon RF mount. Yeah. And beyond that, if you look at the placement of the sensor inside the RF mount, it does not look like it fits to the exact same size as a full frame sensor. It looks like it's smaller than that. Yeah. So here we have um, like a, a, a red equivalent of a GoPro. Right. I mean, it's as compact as it can possibly be. Uh, modern lens mount, modern technology, a slightly smaller sensor. They're saying that it is not under five thousand dollars unless you are like me and you own a hydrogen mm-hmm. because they're giving preferential pricing to anybody that uh, has bought into the hydrogen system. And it's supposed to be a module that is compatible with the hydrogen, but can also operate on its own. I've done a lot of talking here, Jordan. Um, well, what is your opinion of both the uh, hydrogen and their way forward, as well as this module and what this could possibly be in terms of uh, market usability? Well, I mean, the hydrogen, I think it's just going to be a completely new product. And I'm I'm curious if they're going to keep the 3D emphasis on it. Um, that I'm very curious about because I didn't see them talking too extensively about that, even though that was the the big draw of the initial hydrogen. Yeah. But what I really think, if you look at most of the red stuff that's come out, they've gradually been moving towards a smaller and lighter box that's just a lens mount and a sensor. And then you just rig it up with their own uh, proprietary and quite expensive accessories to make it usable. I think this is kind of... This is this is in their order of what they've been working towards. Um, just a very small mirrorless mount, so you can shave off quite a bit of size and weight just by doing that. And the RF mount's an extremely adaptable mount. Uh, I'm sure we'll see a bunch of PL mounts and stuff like that for it very shortly. But I think, basically, they've always had the bomb electronic viewfinders, and I think it's called the Red Eye, their LCD displays, mm-hmm. which are... Very expensive. I mean, they're not the best quality out there, but you need those in order to interface with the camera. So this makes perfect sense. If you buy their smartphone, that just replaces the LCD on it. It'll be smaller and lighter than one of their big seven-inch monitors, uh, and that would handle the interface. Otherwise, you would have to buy that, you know, $2,000, $3,000 interface display, which would push that over the $5,000 price point. That would be my guess. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so you've got, uh, he gives, he gave a list of what it isn't, uh, not what it is. And so um, of the things that are also uh, what it is not, it is not an 8K VV sensor. Mm -hmm. It is not a dragon or a helium or a Gemini or a monstro sensor. So this is like their entire product catalog of everything that's current. It's not any of those things. So that, that effectively says that this is a new sensor. It's a new lens mount. 
new technology for communication. This is, I don't want to call it a, a, a Gen 1 device because they've got a, a huge pedigree now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you have a new lens mount with new communication protocols, it's going to have some stumbling blocks, I, I perceive, just moving forward, especially uh, they don't say if they have any uh, uh, you know, sort of first party, uh, you know, uh, back of the laboratory conversations with Canon. Uh, I'm assuming they've had at least some communication in order to be able to be using the mount at this point, but it's still it's still even new for Canon. Yeah. So to, to have a third party come in so early in the game is really enticing. It really shows the, the guts that Red has to revolutionize and kind of stay ahead of the curve. You mentioned the price points too, though, Jordan. And they were in a bit of a scandal recently about their, uh, what are their um, media? The Red uh, Mag cassettes the red mags yes um those things have been found to have basically just consumer and not expensive the the -the run-of-the-mill uh ssds inside of them (laughs) in a very expensive case and so red has also announced they will be dropping the prices uh on their uh on their red mags or uh, i guess any other various medias that they have their uh mini mags i think is the ones that were taken apart specifically so uh, it is, uh, I don't know. It's a bad is PR time for Red, that's for sure. So it, this yeah, needs to be exciting. The blood is in the water from the other manufacturers right now so that uh, anybody else that wants to try and eat further away at their market within the video space and, well, I don't really want to say eat away at their market in the cell phone space because they really didn't get any. Right. Uh, but uh, onward and upward, right? I don't think it could get worse for them. So the next news is going to be good news. Yeah. Uh, I am also, <sighs> kind of, I find it kind of interesting too. We've got an RF mount with what I, it looks like a super 35 sensor on there. Um, and Canon has a um, the mount, the M mount, which is for their APS-C cameras. So I am also very curious if um, Canon might be bringing out RF mount crop um, lenses and crop cameras in their future. I've said it on this podcast before. Uh, I don't know why Canon even came out with the RF mount when a full frame sensor could fit inside the M mount. If you look at the diameters, it's bigger than the Sony E mount. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe the underlying tech and communication wasn't there. They didn't design it for that way. It doesn't look like Sony did either. Um, But you could go either way, a smaller sensor and a bigger mount or vice versa and still have something usable. It's interesting. Yeah. That's uh, here's hoping. I'd like to see Red do something. I shot a film on the dragon, and it was a disaster last year. So, I'm very wary of some of their flakiness. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's bring it back down to simplicity. About oh, as love simple as you can get photographically with the next story, uh, because Sony has come out with their. They got to rebrand this CyberShot <laughs> RX100 uh, version seven CyberShot. Yeah. Jordan, this sounds like something's for, like from a 1997 science fiction movie, which would have been really cool and cutting edge over 20 years ago. I mean, th- but they still have they the celebrate their rate. roots. I love it. They're still selling yeah. something branded Walkman as well. It's great. Good job, Sony. <laughs> okay, so we have the next iteration of the RX100, which is uh, I'm going to say their flagship point and shoot. Uh, they have some super zoom models and they have a few uh, you know cameras of note, but this is the one that's always been interesting to me <laughs> in terms of just the quality in a small package kind of thing. Something that pretty well fits in my pocket uh, so long as I have big enough pockets. Um, this is it's an interesting space because the point-and-shoot camera market has all but evaporated Mm -hmm. aside from a few key players making very few products. So why don't we start there, Jordan? What what do you see as the purpose for the point-and-shoot market today that cannot be handled by people with a smartphone or people with a regular camera with interchangeable lenses? Well, I think Sony really sees which way it's going because their RX100 series, which I loved before, had a 2470 lens on them right up until the version 6. And now we're starting to see phones like the Pixel uh, 3 with its high-resolution digital zoom capture that's stacked from a bunch of images is doing a really good job at a 50-millimeter equivalent. That's only going to keep getting better. Now, they've got a larger sensor, so that's an advantage there, but they can't do as much fancy computational photography as the other ones. So moving to a long zoom lens, this is now a 24 to 200, which they did in the last version, makes a lot of sense with this. Uh, And that is something you can't get a large sensor, big zoom with a smartphone. Uh, And I think that makes a lot of sense. It's a perfect travel family kind of range. Personally, I would rather have the 2470 back with the faster lens, but I can see they're trying to still maintain a consumer space. 
Now, that's a great thought, too, because, yeah, it's not as fast. But uh, you have to understand that people that are after a fast lens, they're going to be buying that lens as a separate device for even a small camera like a Micro Four Thirds camera mm-hmm. uh, that might have a nice fast prime if you need that speed. Um, but for something like this, yeah, 24 to 200. I used to love doing travel photography with my 24 to 105 And I'd often find myself uh, out at the 105 range uh, wishing I could get a little bit further, 150 or uh, in this case, even 200 with a high quality image. And there's no debating the RX100's heritage so far. They're coming out with them almost yearly at this point, like the uh, point and shoot world used to embrace uh, a yearly upgrade to pretty well every camera in the lineup with, I mean, minor stuff. It's not going to be, okay, I'm going to go out and buy a new camera every year to get the latest and the greatest. I think the manufacturers of that era realized that, uh, you know, if somebody buys a camera, they're going to hold on to that for, I don't know, five to seven years, at least in the point and shoot space when that was really bustling. Mm -hmm. And by the time five years would roll around, there would be enough of a difference from the camera that they previously had to consider buying what was a new offering on the market today. The upgrades are faster uh, with the RX100. If I were to have like the RX100 uh, version 4, I might consider going up to the 7 because it is a sizable difference in terms of the features, um, just the image quality, the zoom, and what have you moving forward. Um, but I, I just, I got a feeling for this that, you know, Canon has their PowerShot uh, G5 and uh, and their G7 series. Panasonic has the uh, the ZX, uh, sorry, the ZS series, which are kind of similar within it, within this range. But there's nobody else, and nobody's going to jump into this market. It's not anything that's growing; it's shrinking. And I think there will be a time in the near future where every manufacturer will have one token yeah. uh, fixed lens camera, and that's it. And even that will potentially go away at some point within the next, I'm going to say six or seven years. Yeah, I agree. I I would love to see for the time while we're in this kind of transition period, I'd love to see the option of a fast, short zoom and a long zoom, um, which is what you always saw with the smaller, like one over 2.3 cameras. They would give you the faster lens with the three times zoom or the slow 10 times zoom. Uh, I'd love to see something like that with these. But what they are really focusing on is usability with this, uh, which I think is really interesting. It's the exact same body design. But uh, I don't know, Don, have you had a chance to try a camera with real time tracking yet? Sony's latest autofocus interface? I ha- Well, I mean, I've, I've seen some people using it, but I yeah, they were just uh, students at a workshop with the the latest and greatest stuff. And I, I just kind of glanced over and said, Hey, that's a cool feature. But, uh, I, I didn't have any hands-on uh, experience with it. That might be helpful for something like this, mm-hmm. especially if you can get it into a small package. Um, but I, what do you think Jordan about, um, uh, Rico had the GXR, was it? GR3. Uh, with the, uh, no, but the, the one with the interchangeable modules. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a a totally revolutionary approach to photography in terms of, okay, you you want a different lens on your point and shoot camera? Well, it's bundled with the sensor and you just fit it into the same interface so that the manufacturing costs of the interface uh, don't reflect the cost of the core components that you might want to improve over time. Mm I thought that was a brilliant strategy, except Ricoh, uh, they have very little market share. I mean, you might know them as Pentax because that's a brand that they own, um, but their, their, uh, their footprint as an actual manufacturer in the namespace, nobody would really pay attention to that uh, for something that is so out in left field yeah. that you know, you're not going to invest into a system if you're unfamiliar uh, with any brand loyalty or anything like that. But I love that concept. Mm -hmm. And I wish that some other bigger manufacturer like like Sony or Panasonic or Canon uh, would jump in and say, hey, you know what, let's try that and and see what happens. Well, and it would make so much sense with a company like Canon or Nikon, where the core interface and ergonomics have not changed in a decade. Uh, Because that's what I loved about the GR, you could pick it up with any module, it was the same camera, same interface, all your custom settings were still the same. Uh, So that would make a ton of sense for it, where that is one of my issues with Sony is if you were using an RX105 and then you grab a 7, you've got two different focal lengths, which is great, but the camera interface is completely different between the two of them. So you don't get quite that nice modular feel to it. 
to be fair, the uh, the newer Sony interfaces are far better than their their previous ones. Yes. Uh, but no matter how good they are, it's like learning another language. Yeah. Uh, you have to understand fundamentally where some of those tricky settings are. Like if you're doing a lot of uh, you know uh, bracketing, whether it be focus or light or uh, or aperture bracketing, which I don't know why anybody would really do. Um, I mean, use a smartphone if you want to start blurring backgrounds uh, with computational photography at that point. But um, if you want to find any of those settings, it's in a completely different place on every camera. Yeah. Uh, and even like we were doing at a workshop that I was doing out in Seattle and in Anchorage recently, uh, we were having some fun with the multiple exposure modes on, uh, you know, whatever camera people had. And I was shocked at how vastly inconsistent they were. Um, I loved some of the features on the, uh, the Lumix uh, S1R, where you would have sort of an onion skin overlay of your previous images that you could even see in the electronic viewfinder, which, you know, it's a great advantage uh, over my uh, former optical viewfinder days. And you didn't have to pre-select the number of frames. You could just say if you wanted to add another one and add another one. But on Canon cameras, you had to pre-select the number of frames, but you could then choose to save all of the images out separately and choose an image to start with that was already on your memory card, features that I don't have. Right. And everything was so, uh, I mean, I, you couldn't use the exact same techniques from, you know, if you were Pentax, well, well, you're out to lunch. Um, so <laughs> it, was, uh, it was an interesting experience just to kind of dig into those weeds and see how those camera interfaces really... I, I just wish that there was some commonality that everybody wasn't so proud of their proprietariness because it just hurts the consumer at the end of the day. Totally. Uh, so did you take a look at some of the, um, the shooting functions on this as well? Cause kind of the headline stuff is all based on the sensor and the new processor on that. Um, well, exactly. And so if, if you want to get into some of those, those details here, it's fun to think that if you want to be shoot, uh, like that key moment of some, like, a. a baseball bat hitting a ball or just something where you you really have a hard time pinning down exactly what that moment is well you can shoot up to 90 frames per second yeah. uh i mean within some limited functionality of With, course well, you're not going to be able to hold your finger on the shutter button for you know 10 minutes and record 90 frames per second of all full resolution mm -hmm. uh files unless i'm reading that wrong but um but you can anticipate that key moment, it says here in the article, uh, and grab multiple frames immediately after you fully press the shutter button. Yeah. So when you know that action is about to happen, then you just capture that. Um, it doesn't say exactly how many seconds you would get, but hopefully enough to get that moment that you're looking for, um, which I've always been envious of uh, on some of these smaller cameras that just have that electronic shutter and caress it so beautifully. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's seven frames after you push the shutter um, at 90 or 30 or 60 frames per second, you get to choose that. Um, what I wish they had done is use some of that pre-buffering that they've used in their video modes before and give oh, you yeah. three frames before the second you push the shutter and three frames afterwards. Um, so this is a little bit tricky because I found when I was testing it, a lot of the time I had just missed that moment and had seven frames right after it. But I could see for like, uh, for especially kids, sports, things like that. It's an interesting option because it feels like you're just taking single frames, but then you review it and it's like, oh, there's seven every time I push the shutter on that. Right. It's kind of like the live photo system that Apple rolled out on their phones yeah. where you've got that little bit of video associated with the photos. Uh, and I've always liked that feature, even if I haven't found a, a, a really purposeful use for it. It just brings things to life a little bit more. Uh, but you are right that that little kind of uh, pre-buffer thing, just having that kind of rolling count before you press the button, they've done it before. They could do this on this platform, which would help for less predictable moments. I use the um, baseball and, and bat uh, analogy to really predict when that action is going to happen. But what if you're waiting for like a, a, a bee to jump out of a flower, mm -hmm. right? Because you want to capture it in flight. And it's actually much easier to get that point of action when he's jumping off the flower than flying into it. Uh, you just kind of follow it around and try to wait for exactly that moment. But if you don't press the button fast enough, then all you get is nothing. Yeah. You just get the flower and no bee. Yeah. So yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen that in there as well. Yeah, something similar to Olympus does a great job with it with their pro capture mode. And it's a full second before you push the shutter. Uh, I also love it for things like birds taking off anything like that. Just tap the shutter afterwards. But it is still very cool. And I always look at these RX100 series cameras 
as these are tech demos for what's going to be coming to the larger sensors down the road. Uh, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing here is, yes, insanely fast shooting rates on that. And the real-time tracking, which I can't talk up enough because my major issue with the ARCS 100 cameras is I needed to customize a ton of buttons for the Sony menu system. I don't want to go in that menu. And there's not many <laughs> buttons on it. It's a very small camera. Real-time tracking takes up three of the custom buttons I would usually dedicate one for eye detection, one for changing my focus size, all that uh, real-time tracking replaces all of them. So now I've got a functional small camera where I actually feel like I might have enough custom function buttons on it. Uh, so that's all interesting. I, I think it's big step in the right direction, but I'm most excited by what it means we're going to see later this year. Do you think anybody would actually use the electronic viewfinder on a camera this size? Uh, I do all the. I did a review for the RX one hundred four. It was actually the first camera review that I hosted for uh, back in Camera Store TV days, and I was using it out shooting on the beach for a week. Um, and of course, you're in the bright sun; you can barely see the display. Has a touch screen, so it gets covered in gunk and was not the best, brightest display for that. So I used it all the time. The problem is it pops up. And you have to force your, the, I, it's a very small viewfinder. So you're pushing it up. And I, I described it as you get a lot of eye juice very quickly on that viewfinder <laughs> from just mashing your eye up to try and frame it up. It's, it's useful. It's not comfortable. I'm glad it's there for those situations. But yeah, it's not my favorite design. But then how do you make a very small camera with a usable viewfinder? It's pretty much impossible. Yeah. I mean, at that point, it's, I'd rather carry around one of those Hoodman loops uh, to kind of just turn the back of the screen itself into a viewfinder, which I think um, Sigma is embracing with their, uh, their FP camera, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's the plan yeah. there. Yeah, well, and uh, interesting approach on a small camera to get a useful viewfinder. I, sort of like on my uh, my GX9, it, it's not, it doesn't pop up. It sticks out a little bit. And so you've got a little bit of an eye cup, yeah. something that you can even pivot up so that you're not smushing your face against the back of the screen. Um, and it's I guess it's too much to ask to have something that both pops up and pivots in order to make it more useful. But hey, technology is always marching forward. Got to have something for the eight, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's dive into some of the uh, the social media woes that I have found on the uh, on the internet in the last week. Um, uh, from f stoppers here, uh, Instagram deletes dozens of accounts with millions of followers without warning. So, I, I mean, picture this: you have amassed a uh, a following of ten million people. Oh, if only, and what uh, if only, uh, and you have these people that love your work that are liking everything that you post so much so that you're getting sponsorship deals and you're paying uh, all of your bills with your social media account. And then you wake up the next day and it's gone. Um, that would be a bad scenario to be in. But, you know, we look at the social media world, uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Okay, well, heck, you go to Flickr, which is owned by SmugMug. Uh, of course, Twitter is its own entity. But any of these places where where you happen to be sharing your work and building an audience could either go bankrupt. Uh, they could delete your account because they don't agree with you. It's not a public forum, so it's not really a free speech thing. You have to be bound by their terms of use uh, and their community guidelines and whatever else they want to say. Um, and I have had some issues where uh, in the past... Uh, I posted a copy of my upcoming book, uh, one of the product uh, shot demo images onto 500px. And they banned my account mm -hmm. without any warning, without any notice. I only had like uh, three to 5,000 followers on there. Um, but I complained and they found that it was that post that violated their guidelines because it was, uh, they considered it to be advertising and they deleted my account uh, for that without any warning uh, or any recourse aside from just complaining to a, you know, a black hole email account that eventually did get back to me. But, you know, <laughs> If that happened to my Facebook presence, I mean, a lot of the people that find out about my workshops and about, you know, my upcoming projects, they'll find about, uh, out about me on Facebook or on Instagram. Um, and I would hate to have that account just disappear overnight. It can happen. And it just did happen to people that were heavy influencers. Uh, before I go on any farther, what do you think about that in terms of 
like building your career in a social media infrastructure? And then why do you think these accounts were deleted? Well, I mean, it's terrifying for me because YouTube is my livelihood, um, even more so than, you know, you're still selling prints of your work and to a variety, you know, magazines are doing video work, stuff like that. You've got a lot of sources. I live off YouTube, so it's terrifying. But these, I mean, in some regards, you know what you're doing signing up for these. They're, they own everything, and who knows how long um, things are going to operate the way that they currently are. And these, this was interesting because it looked like all four of them were accounts that posted a bunch of memes. Um, so uh, This is what I was hoping you were going to get into today, uh, because you can't just post content that somebody else owns without their permission. You can't find something on Instagram and reshare it through the structure of the program itself. You would have to download that image. You would have to re-upload it, uh, which in almost every case would be copyright infringement. Right. I mean, I'm not a lawyer here, but uh, and if you do it unmodified, that's one thing. Um, if you add in a few words over top of it, it's derivative. It's not transformative. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm 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 making up things right now. Uh, but I would think that in in a court of law, uh, copyright infringement uh, would be you know pointed at and said, yeah, that that qualifies. Yeah. So. If that's the case, and you're making your money off of other people, oftentimes without their permission, yeah, I think this uh, this was deserved. Yeah. But you mentioned YouTube, and like I had 1.3 million followers on Google Plus. Now I have no followers on Google Plus because it's a closed network uh, for you know industry professionals and anybody that is part of G Suite uh, can use it, but it's not public anymore. Yeah. And so I I effectively have no audience there. So um, when, when we look at <laughs> at this uh, dancing that line of community guidelines and, and everything else. I mean, so many people steal my work all the time and will repost it to every platform. I've had people claim it's theirs on Flickr uh, and have to you know, send takedown notices and whatever else. And yes, I send commercial infringements to my lawyers uh, in Canada, the US and, and elsewhere because you have to defend your work. And I'm glad that Instagram is cracking down on this mm-hmm. because I don't think we need that kind of regurgitated content that puts certain individuals up on a pedestal because they can steal people's stuff better than other people uh and and you know whatever cutesy words they might add on to it will entice whatever preteen audience by the droves to be attracted to it um am i like a curmudgeonly old man at this point well i think what we're supposed to call it is curated stealing now is the correct so you've got someone who's an excellent curator who's choosing what to steal and that is the future of social media i mean i don't yeah um these accounts, I'm not too worried about them getting banned. I just worry once this becomes more and more normalized over time, you know, what, what is, I'd hate to see it kind of hit the point of 500 PX where there's some stuff that's, you know, like heavily edited and post that they're saying, well, that has to be pulled off the camera, the platform, even if it is something that was created in camera that looks like that. Um, you know, I yeah. worry about it being a slippery slope. I, th- I mean, Instagram is big enough. I think they'll be pretty wary of that compared to something smaller like 500px. But uh, yeah, it's all scary. I mean, I've used your likeness in YouTube videos. So even I'm guilty of this. You were in the episode with us, but still. Uh, well, yes, I, I, you didn't actually <laughs> ask me to sign off on anything, though, Jordan. <laughs> we filmed I, you, you from afar. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you were just having a conversation with Chris. Yeah. 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 Okay. But uh, to, to further on the Instagram thing, I mean, I know not everybody uh, goes into that world, but you have these influencers that are uh, actually putting themselves in harm's way to take pretty selfies in dangerous locations so that they can rack up likes. Uh, another article from DP Review uh, it says Instagram users are risking their health for images at Spain's toxic Monte Nemi uh, Lake, which I'm probably mispronouncing. But yeah, so you've got this beautiful turquoise lake like you're somewhere tropical. Yeah, it's chemicals in the water that will burn your skin. Don't get close to that stuff. People were swimming in it and had rashes for weeks. Uh, I think somebody had to go to the hospital because they drank some of the water. It's okay. But this is because... This is an, an addictive thing. People crave the likes. You get an endorphin rush whenever you see those likes rack up and rack up and you have your most liked photo and you just, you're living on those brain drugs that feed addictions and then you want to go out and do more and push it farther. And so Instagram 
has been playing around with the concept of hiding public likes. And I kind of like that in certain scenarios. Yep. And it's not in every country. And even if it is, I don't know if it's universal. Uh, they're just testing the waters to see exactly how this can play out in terms of interaction and how it affects interaction. Because they want to keep the engagement on the platform up. That's how they make their money. Uh, but they also don't want people to be risking their lives and doing stupid stuff to have that like counter go up publicly and, and show that off to their friends that they have more likes than anybody else in their class. Right. Um, but because that is sort of, um, you know, gambling and addiction theory, uh, another article from DP Review, a uh, U.S. Senator targets addictive social media features with newly proposed SMART Act. And with any piece of legislation, there's more in it that there ne- uh, than there needs to be, and there's stuff in there that I, you know, probably wouldn't want uh, to uh, like. It's completely unrelated, or stuff that should be in there that's it's not all. In co- it doesn't fit perfectly, right. is what I'm trying to say. Um, but the fact that people are trying to legislate this type of behavior that you know, Facebook, Instagram, they're the same company, and uh, and of course, you look at. Uh, and this is bizarre too, because I have a three-year-old daughter. And so when she starts hopping around YouTube videos, there are videos of other children playing with their toys that have like 175 million views. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, well, number one, uh, you know, my daughter's watched that video now like 20 times. So that counts for something because every kid doesn't just watch these things once. But you know, they play on psychology. And when people figure out what works psychologically to get more attention, they're going to go down that route. Uh, What do you think about all this and where we're going? Because social media is going to have a greater impact on our lives in the next 10 years than any other social impact, so long as climate change doesn't kill us all. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm terrified of it too, because I've got a four-year-old boy and it's the exact same thing is, you know, you'll think he's watching something that's 20 minutes long, but nope, that wasn't the case. And it's auto jumped to another video. And yeah, he's watching a toy video, same kind of thing, or something with that heavy, like, like subscribe YouTube culture that I don't want him to expose to because that's daddy's dirty work. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I mean, some stuff like that, I do think uh, they've done some studies on how people will get more and more extreme with the YouTube and Facebook algorithms that are out there right now. Um, you know, that I think needs to be regulated by those social media companies themselves. So I'm fine with that. I also love the idea of getting rid of unlimited scroll, uh, which was kind of the headline in that article that you posted there yeah, is yeah. getting rid of that uh, because the number of times it's been one o'clock in the morning and it, I've just Twitter scrolled or Instagram scrolled, you know, with no point, no end in sight. I'm guilty of it. And I'm aware of what's going on. So, Oh, and then you, you dive into one thread that you know is going to have a hundred comments yep. and it's going to be controversial and you're going to read every one of that. And yep. then you get to the end of that and you can just hit the back button and then it's an endless scroll again. Yep. Right. And I know this because I'm guilty of it too, <laughs> but for our children's generation, uh, this is something that they're not going to encounter as adults. They're encountering as their brains are forming and as their basic social interactions as a toddler preschool and so on and so forth uh, are going to have a dramatic impact on their lives. I mean, I don't want my daughter to have an Instagram account for many years, right. but that endless scrolling uh, mentality is on YouTube as well, yeah. right? It's the, it's the same psychological impact. Yeah, there's always another different, slightly weirder video than the one that you just watched. So I think we're kind of overdue for people stepping because clearly the companies are not going to regulate themselves. That's not happening. Google and Facebook and all of those. So I do think someone needs to step up. I'm, you know, a little wary of what'll happen uh, once you bring politics into the mix here, but uh, I think it has to happen. So I'm, I'm on the fence, but vaguely in support of it. Yeah. I mean, the companies are not in our favor and then you have to say, well, will the government be, in our favor? No. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, you, you, the lesser of the two evils, and everybody's yeah. going to weigh them differently, but I think that if you can have the government maintain uh, certain constraints on companies while maintaining full free speech uh, and everything else, then that would be uh, that would be ideal. Yeah, in the that same way that gambling... Probably like, won't happen. Well, like the gambling is regulated and stuff like that. I think it's going to have to hit a similar point. 
Exactly. All right. Well, that is the world we live in uh, as technology marches forward. And as technology marches forward, this the final story that we're going to end on before we get to our picks um, uh, from Petapixel, although I think I saw it on DP Review as well. Uh, Great website. Create, uh, it is great. It is my morning read uh, that the wonderful folks at DP Review. Um, uh, that is my unbiased opinion. Your opinion is biased, but uh, that's because he works for them. Scientists create contact lenses that work with blinks and looks. And this is really cool because uh, it's not just blinking, but looking around can change the way a, um, a contact lens can change its shape. <laughs> And so um, this is not new technology. Uh, European scientists had announced a blink to zoom 2.x times contact uh, a contact lens in 2013. Uh, but this new lens goes a step further and detecting and responding to eye movements as well. In a nutshell, you have a contact lens that when voltage is applied will change its shape and allow you to zoom in on uh, on certain subjects. Um, so there's some examples of, of you looking around to different, uh, different things and you can double blink and you can zoom, but the movement uh, can also be applied into this as well. I don't wear contacts. Kind of makes me wish I did uh, to have some of this fancy super technology uh, where I'd immediately get like Superman eagle eyes and be able to, to see things at a distance far greater than the average human being could. Um, but will this ever be technology we can go out and buy rather than just building something like this into glasses, which would make a lot more sense? Yeah, I, I think it'll get there probably eventually. I just really hope that when you do the double blink to zoom, it makes a very audible noise to whoever you're around. I want like a <laughs> or something like that it would be wonderful. Um, but yeah, I do think we're going to start to see some of this as you know everything gets scaled down smaller and smaller and smaller. And people are becoming masters at working with very small optics because of things like smartphones and small spherical lenses. Uh, I, I think it's going to hit that point. I mean, certainly a contact lens is going to be less obtrusive. And if you're a person who's not accustomed to wearing reading glasses, but hell, I want a big zoom on my eyeball uh, – then of course that's going to be, there's no learning curve there. We're used to having our eyes in. So uh, I don't know. It's, it's a great, it's one of your wonderful end of show novelties that gets me thinking about things. I don't know how soon it's going to hit market or if it will, but uh, it's fun to think about. I, I can't see that there being a practical consumer use for this. Um, what, what I mean by that if is they had the sound there is. Yeah, if they can do that, you know, it looks like there's a little line coming out the, the bottom of their design of the um, uh, of the optic, assuming that voltage has to be applied, there has to be a power source somehow. And so if there's a power source somehow, then maybe wherever that power source is located, could have a speaker. And I think that that would solve, uh, solve everything. So... <laughs> <laughs> but if you were to have like uh, my my stepdad wears contact lenses, and if I said, "Hey, could you you could get this latest greatest new technology where you can zoom with your contact lens," pretty sure he'd say, "Eh, eh I'm fine. I, I I don't need that. If I need anything that technologically invasive, I'll just put on my bifocals." Right. Uh, and uh, and that's the solution that I think a lot of people would have. You know, if you get into um, uh, more. I don't know, military applications, there could be a use for that. Yeah. Um, if you were on uh, the International Space Station and you're going on a spacewalk and you want to zoom in on something, I mean, put these contact lenses in and you have your automatic eyeball augmentation without having to do anything else. Um, so I think that there is science in industrial and uh, and possibly even medical applications. Can right. you imagine your doctor peering over uh, during an operation and just double blink to make sure that the, uh, the incision that they're putting in is even more accurate and exactly on the mark than the human eye would normally be able to detect. Um, so I think that that's where this market is going to be, at least to start, especially because price point is probably going to be astronomical. Um, and I think that if this ever does become a consumer device, yeah, it's got to have that noise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Jordan, uh, before we get into our picks, uh, where can people find you online? I know uh, DP Review TV, that's uh, youtube.com slash DP Review. Right. Uh, DP Review Com. We didn't quite get there fast enough for DP Review. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, you can also find me. I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram as uh, that Jordan Drake. 
and we'll have those links in the show notes. And you did mention some of the upcoming stuff that you're playing with uh, in terms of uh, what you're putting out on DP Review TV. Can you talk about the next video that you're putting out? Uh, we've got a couple going out. The Nikkor 2470 um, is a really impressive standard zoom lens uh, on their Z mounts. We're finally starting to see kind of Nikon's promise of really compelling lens options that they couldn't do before on the F mount. This is the, the first one I would say is a huge step forward for them. So that'll be coming out right away. And uh, what else? Are we? we got a whole bunch of stuff that's all unannounced that's on the way shortly because we're coming okay. into we're coming into the fall. That's when cameras are announced, and it's going to be an oh, exciting. Oh, well, that's one. when cameras, new computers, and everything electronic gets announced because you've got to get the back to school rush. You get everything else for Christmas, and uh, and so I'm looking forward to seeing what those uh, those juicy gems will be yep. when uh, when you can publicly talk about them. Let's get into the picks then. Um, my pick is something that kind of came um, a, a little bit out of obscurity for me. This is the uh, the Irix, which is a, a newer lens brand. They've been around for a couple of years. Uh, they've got some wider angle lenses on the market, but this is the Irix 150 millimeter macro lens. And uh, I got this originally to demo. Um, uh, uh, BJ Photo, uh, thank you so much for giving me a demo to, to play with. I kept it. I paid them for it because I didn't want to give it back. It was that good. Um, this was based on the uh, uh, Canon EF mount. I think they have a few other mounts, but I adapted it to the uh, the, um, uh, the Leica L mount. This is, I've always wanted a, a, a macro lens that is just really solid, no bells and whistles, but the best optics and a decent focal length. And so 150 is a little bit wider than I'd normally use, um, but it lets you get further away from certain subjects. Um, it does get the full one-to-one -one magnification. But the focus throw on this is quite far. Ooh. I mean, I have to readjust my hand to to get that to uh, to go all the way around, which would make it great for video. Or if you're on a tripod, would make it great for very finely tuning exactly where your focus is going to be if you're not quite at one-to-one -one magnification. Um, this is an interesting hybrid lens, and it's the first lens that I've ever seen that has uh, done this when it didn't need to. Um, it has automatic aperture control. So uh, you dial the aperture in the top of the camera and it gives you that aperture when you press the shutter button, but it's manual focus. So, I mean, the Canon MPE 65 lens was manual focus. Uh, so is Canon's tilt shift lenses. They're all manual focus, but they out of necessity kind of had to be. Right. This did not have to be, but for design simplicity, um, that's where it would be at. It's uh, 595 US, about 780 Canadian. So those prices with the exchange are about the same. Uh, and for that price, for a decent macro lens that has outstanding optics, I don't use autofocus when I'm using a macro lens at all ever. Uh, it behaves absolutely wonderfully. Hmm. However, uh, at first I couldn't use it because I was using the, like, it's a piece of, uh, I was going to say a bad word. It's a piece of garbage. The uh, the NovoFlex EF to uh, Leica SL mount, which is now called the L mount, L -mount. Uh, adapter which I bought it because I needed to use it in the early days when I didn't have access to the new Sigma um, MC21 mount uh, adapter. And the NovoFlex adapter, when I try to mount this camera, it just makes a god-awful noise inside the lens, uh, not doing anything. And knowing that it doesn't have any focusing mechanism at all, uh. I just... Took, took it off because I don't know yeah. what it's doing to the aperture blades uh, in that process. It's going to break that lens. But on the uh, the Sigma MC21, this behaves perfectly, flawlessly, no issue whatsoever. Uh, and at that price point, for a good macro lens, knowing that autofocus is not a necessity, nor is the latest and greatest image stabilization at those scales, I think it's a good buy. And so uh, I have purchased the Irix 150mm macro. I would love to see more third-party lens manufacturers do that where there's contacts with the lens information in manual focus glass, uh, largely because I'm a camera reviewer and it's very difficult to organize stuff when you have no metadata on it. But it's also just a very sensible option to find out where the lens is performing best, things like that. Uh, it's great to see. And I know Laua is starting to do that with some of their designs too, is uh, carrying some I, I want to see it in every one of these lenses it's, that I buy in the future. Uh, partly, like you said, metadata is useful, but especially on a macro scale, when you're getting into higher magnifications uh, and you're stopping your aperture down quite small in order to get a greater depth of field, then you're going to have almost no light coming through the lens or at least all the way to the sensor. And so if you're using an optical viewfinder, it's going to be very, very dim and it's going to be hard to predict exactly where your focus is going to be. Yeah. Because when you have the aperture blades already locked down into a small 
a, a, a small aperture, uh, your depth of field is inherently greater. And mm-hmm. so to figure out exactly where that focusing point is much more difficult yeah. than if the lens is wide open. Um, and on an electronic viewfinder, the frame rate will just drop on you. Or it'll get super noisy as well. You, you're going to lose either way. Either way, exactly. So yeah, if I can see more manufacturers adopting this practice, um, uh, you know, I mentioned last week that... Um, uh, or was it the week before that Meyer Optic is coming out with their Trio Plan 100 version two, and it's supposed to be better than their current one, but it's going to be a mechanical aperture on that thing as well, and it just turns me off. If they came out with an automatic aperture on that, I would buy it for twice the price. Right. Cool. Well, I mean, it's good to see. Honestly, it's nice that all the Chinese manufacturers are pushing so much innovation in the manual focus glass right now, both wide angles and macros, which is really where manual focus sings. Right. And uh, I'd love to know what your pick of the week is. My pick of the week, I, I'm kicking myself because I want to review this lens, but I already did a preview video of this lens and I can't do two videos about one lens, but <laughs> I love the new Panasonic Leica 10 to 25 for micro four thirds. I've been shooting with GH5, GH5S's now since they came out. And it's always been with a Metabones adapter and a Sigma 18 to 35. I'm sure you saw that was the kit we were using when we were shooting yep. with you out here in Calgary. Um, cause it offsets really my only, the only deficiencies of the micro four thirds, which is it's tougher to get shallow depth of field, uh, if that's the look that you're going for. And in very low light, there is inherently more noise in it. Uh, and when we went to Panasonic a few years ago at the factory, they were like, why are you using that? Not one of our beautiful Panasonic like design lenses passed the thing around and start a conversation about how, you know, this is something that you could very easily do natively. You don't need an adapter for this kind of thing. So they brought out a 10 to 25 F 1.7 zoom lens, uh, which is what I was looking for, but also put a mechanical focus clutch on it, which they've never done before with micro four thirds Panasonic glass. They've only had it on their new L mount lenses, which are, you know, I think all over 2000 Canadian dollars. Um, so they're reserving it for their premium stuff, but it's great to see. And the thing that really surprised me is it's breathing corrected. And that's extremely rare on photographic lenses. So as you rack focus from- Okay, so describe to me what that is. Yeah. Uh, Because I I mean, I know, but the audience might not. Yeah. So when you're racking focus from macro to infinity, most of your photographic lenses are actually going to change the focal length. So you'll see a zoom effect. And I know you see this all the time. Macro lenses are by far the most prone to having this. But there's some famous lenses like Nikon 70 to 200 VR, the first version was actually a 135 millimeter effective lens when you were focusing close up, which you would do with headshots all the time. Uh, and as you racked focus, you'd see this big zoom and it's terrible for video because I'm constantly pulling focus from one subject to another. And if it looks like there's a zoom happening, it looks like a bad seventies TV show. And, <laughs> and this, yeah, is- well, and, and when I'm doing focus stacking, um, uh, with, uh, with macro lenses, yeah. you have to, it basically insets the frames like those, uh, Russian Matroshka stacking dolls, <laughs> um, or nesting dolls. And so it, yeah, you can correct for it, but it's very, very obvious that it's happening. Yeah, and if you've carefully chosen your frame when you're focused at the back of the subject and it's cropped in dramatically when you get to the front of it, uh, then you're redoing your entire composition. So it's not only useful for video, but for photo as well. And it's great to see something like this because my favorite breathing corrected lens I used on occasion when I needed that effect was the Fujinon uh, 18 to 55, which is a $6,000 Canadian lens. So Having that at something, I believe this lens is about 2200 Canadian. So just over a third of the price is really impressive. Um, now, the big thing is, is that actually going to replace the 1835? Because an 1835 on a speed booster does still get me shallower depth of field and better low light performance. But I still have that combo and I haven't taken the 10 to 25 off yet. So I guess that kind of speaks <laughs> volumes for how much more I like having a native lens that I don't have to worry about any optical weirdness with a focal reducer in there. And, um, and then having that F 1.7 aperture is more than enough for me for pretty much any shooting situation. Yeah. We didn't mention F 1.7 consistent across the zoom range, which, yeah. uh, is unheard of. Um, 
and that would make it even like a great astrophotography lens on the wider side of things. If you uh, not, it's not going to get the whole star field in the sky, but it is going to be useful for some things. Yeah. Um, but it's not a small lens either, is it? No, I mean it's physically quite big. It's about the same size as a twenty-four to seventy two point eight full frame lens, uh, but it's surprisingly light. Uh, I've had no problem balancing it on smaller gimbals, uh, using it with a monopod. So it, it is bulky, no question. It will draw attention to itself uh, when you go. Sh- like I think it's one of the best street lenses ever made. That focal length covers everywhere you would ever shoot street photography. But uh, yeah, it's it's a big front lens element. But I think the trade-offs are very much worth it for what I do. And I really want to take it out and shoot Astro. I haven't tested Coma on it yet, but... Uh, yeah, that's things. one of the things that I haven't seen anybody test on that lens. And it's been one of the things, okay, well, may- maybe I'll get one because, uh, you know, I, I do have a love for the, uh, the micro four thirds format, especially you know, when I was shooting, uh, I had a GH five S in studio over the winter time. Uh, I got it for some video projects. I needed some faster frame rates and some higher quality stuff. Um, and so I thought, well, let's just try it on some snowflakes the pixel quality on that camera mm-hmm. is better than anything else that I've seen. Uh, yeah, it's only 12 megapixels, but they are the best pixels I've ever encountered. Uh, and so to apply that to higher ISOs uh, for astrophotography, I think could be quite the advantage. So that might be on my to-do list if I didn't have enough to do already. Gotta, gotta go test it. Exactly. Someone has to, because I, I can't I'll do it. I'll let you so, test yeah. it. Right, you right, know, you've yeah. got dark skies there this time of the year. All right, uh, I'll go for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jordan. Well, thank you so much for being on this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. You can find the show notes at photogeekweekly.com, all the stories that we talked about and our picks of the week. And when uh, some videos from you come out, uh, Jordan, I might retroactively add some of that stuff uh, for the uh, the Panasonic uh, uh, log recording to it and maybe some other juicy stuff that we uh, hinted at without saying anything because we can't say anything uh, might end up in uh, in the show notes. Or maybe I'll just have you back on again. I'll just come back. It's going to be a cool fall. So let's do this again soon. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time here. And now it's time to get out and shoot. Mm -hmm.